Managing your 401k is hard. Bloom isn't. See what you could be doing to make your 401k better by getting a free analysis at bloom401k.com slash fool. That's bloom with three O's, 401k.com slash fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, June 15th, and we're talking mega merger. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by fool.com's Evan New. Evan, I've been out of the office for a few weeks. I've missed some big time news. Just got back. First day back was Wednesday. I've missed quite a bit in the financial markets, huh? Yeah, quite a big big news drop right when you get back. <laughs> yeah, it's it's nice to have something to talk about before we get into the AT&T Time Warner deal, which has dominated headlines this week. I want to revisit something that I missed while I was gone. I, I didn't have the good fortune of being in town when the Washington Capitals won the Stanley Cup. Uh, our producer, Austin Morgan, is a big-time Caps fan, and none of the hosts have given Austin a chance to talk about his experience being at the parade, so I wanted to give him a chance to do that. It was electric. Yeah. Like, it was. There were so many people there. Everyone was so happy for a DC championship. It was a lot of fun, because I went down for a Game 5 in town, and it was a happy crowd. No one burned anything. A couple pole climbing, not too bad. But the parade was, there was a lot of people down there. What was better, being in there for when they won it or being in the city for the parade? I think being in there when they won it because it was so, like, it was an event. Like, it was crazy. The parade was fun, but there was so, it was, it was tough to see the parade unless you got there at like six in the morning, which I did not. <laughs> so, I mean, great experience all around. Hopefully, we'll get to do it again next year. Back to back as TJ Oshie. And hopefully I'll be in town next year if it happens. Yeah. Um, all right, Evan, why don't we talk about some of the financial news from the past couple of weeks? Um, yeah, News Ferry was very kind to us, giving us some, some merger deals. Why don't we talk about AT&T and Time Warner? Earlier this week, a federal judge approved AT&T's plans to buy Time Warner. And unless DOJ uh, appeals the deal, it seems like it's going to be going through. Right. So, you know, they announced this deal back in late 2016. And naturally, it was going to face some type of regulatory scrutiny, and the Department of Justice uh, filed suit against to, to try to block them back in, I think, November of, of last year. And you know, so this is kind of the, the result of that that trial because uh, you know they went to trial for like six weeks, uh, but basically a federal judge sided with AT and T and against the, the U.S. government, saying the U.S. government failed to kind of prove its case that you know. The governor is arguing that there, you know, this is anti-competitive. It might hurt consumers in terms of, you know, pricing. It, it would hurt, you know, make the markets for video programming and video distribution less competitive. And ultimately, the federal judge didn't buy those arguments, and they they weren't able to really make a good case for them. And as a quick refresher for the companies and the properties at play here, AT and T, of course, the telecom giant. They also own satellite TV provider Directv. And Time Warner owns properties like HBO, Turner Cable Networks, and the Warner Brothers Film and TV Studios. So, not so much a horizontal acquisition, which is something we'll talk about later, but more of a play to kind of build out the portfolio of um, kind of offerings for AT&T and getting into the content business a little bit. Uh, why don't we talk a little bit about some of the deal winners and deal losers? That might be the easiest way to break things down. And I think it kind of makes sense to start with, you know, why did AT&T want Time Warner to begin with? I mean, it's, it's really kind of follows a long trend of what we've been seeing happening in the telecom space, which is these telecom co- companies are increasingly wanting to buy media companies to own the content that they distribute 
And, you know, certainly the, the kind of big poster boy for this was, you know, Comcast buying a big stake in NBC Universal uh, nearly 10 years ago. And it's worth uh, noting that back then, uh, the Department of Justice did not try, to try as hard as they did to block that one like they did this time. So even though those you know, these two deals are very similar, right? It's just a, a telecom company trying to buy up a giant media company. And that kind of set the tone. And I mean, in the, in the past decade, we've seen Verizon doing a lot of these media type uh, big deals too. So, you know, I think that's just kind of where these companies are going because telecom fundamentally is a commoditized service and they feel like if they own the underlying content, they have more of a, a way to differentiate themselves from, from their competitors. Uh, so yeah, this is just kind of the latest in, in a long string of, of these gigantic telecom media mergers. And this is something we've seen as kind of cord cutting has become much more prevalent. We have all of these over-the-top options available for consumers. And increasingly, ad money is going other than TV, right? You know, it's going to digital ad spend with Facebook and Google. And so I think you look at these businesses and they are trying to kind of build strength and presence with these types of acquisitions. Right, exactly. That's also part of it, too, is that the this whole landscape is changing so quickly that a lot of this is being done to kind of keep up with, you know, how this is evolving over time. Because, you know, like you said, there's all these over the top services, you know, Netflix, Hulu, et cetera. Of course, you know, these media companies own Hulu. Um, but, you know, over the top is kind of a big thing. Cable, you know, cord cutting, ads, ad revenue is all shifting. So, you know, the, the kind of the traditional TV business is not as great as it used to be. So that's why these companies are trying these other moves to kind of, you know, cut costs, you know, um, get, you know, hoping for some cost synergies uh, and vertically integrating other parts of the value chain as a way to kind of keep up with how everything is changing and, you know, with the technology these days. Yeah, the transition in the media space and where ad dollars are going was one of the things that the federal judge pointed to as a reason why this wouldn't necessarily be bad for consumers. Uh, one of the other elements of this that played a really big role in the decision was the fact that this was a vertical acquisition and not a horizontal acquisition. Evan, you want to kind of walk through what the difference is there? Sure. So, in a horizontal merger, uh, that's where you have a company that's basically emerging with a direct competitor. Uh, and that, you know, a good example of this that's, you know, very relevant right now is T-Mobile and Sprint are, are trying to merge. And those are two companies that are in the same space. They're uh, huge companies in a, a very oligop oligopoly industry. There's only like four national carriers. So if they are able to merge, that's a horizontal merger where, you know, by definition, the combined company has a, a much bigger market share than, you know, they would otherwise and that's that's really where there's a lot more potential for consumer harm is because if you take out one of your direct competitors, you have less, you know, obviously you have less of an incentive to compete in, you know, lower prices and all the, the good things that competition brings. Whereas in a vertical merger, that's where you're basically trying to vertically integrate some other part of the value chain. So in this case, you know, you know, AT&T and Time Warner do not compete with each other right now, right? I mean, they're in totally they're in different mar parts of the market. Um, so, you know, they're looking to kind of absorb you know, another aspect of, you know, it, basically Time Warner is a supplier, right? The content supplier. So that's not a situation where, the, you know, there's fundamentally you know, going to be this huge potential to, to hurt consumers. And looking at this deal, we'll get into why maybe this isn't a slam dunk for AT&T, but it feels like a pretty good win for Time Warner, right? They are they're getting scooped up, they're getting scooped up at a premium, um, and they are kind of able to be a content provider within this larger business. Right. So the AT&T, I mean, excuse me, Time Warner shareholders will end up owning about fifteen percent of the combined company. Uh, they're a clear winner here because you know anytime your your company is getting bought, like you said, there's a big premium involved. 
Uh, there, there's a cash and stock component to the deal, so they get to pocket some of the cash, which takes some of the risk off the table. Uh, but then the stock that they'll get as well, you know, they, they will get to kind of participate in the combined company's future, both up and down, you know, better and worse going forward. Another winner from Time Warner is CEO Jeff Bukes, and this is an executive that has really been at the helm for a while at this company, and I think played a pretty big role in creating all these properties that became so valuable to AT&T, right? I mean, we've seen this amazing rise uh, in prominence for HBO because of all this amazing programming that they've put out over the last couple of years. Uh, Bukes was kind of largely behind that. He also helped untangle Time Warner from AOL, which is a failed mega merger, and, and one of the reasons why I can be kind of skeptical of these types of you know high value acquisitions. Um, but it seems like Bukes walks out of this you know as as a pretty clear winner. Oh yeah, he's going to get a nice little payday, and <laughs> yeah, like you mentioned, the AOL Time Warner deal was such like this famous you know disaster that you know at this point right now it you know. It'll be on AT&T to kind of execute on this acquisition and integrating it and, and really seeing this vision through. So I think that well, while at face value they're a winner because they got what they want, they're also taking on a humongous amount of debt. The combined company will have like over $180 billion in debt because they're assuming Time Warner's debt. They're also taking out some debt to finance the cash portion of the deal. So they're, they're, you know, they're, there's quite a bit of risk associated here. And if they can't make this thing work, and again, you know, have this precedent of AOL Time Warner kind of like looming shadow in the background um then you know that that will be painful if it doesn't work so it's the the kind of onus is going to be on them going forward to make it work uh, in light of these risks that they're taking to to complete this deal yeah looking at the numbers in non-adjusted dollars this is the sixth largest acquisition of the past decade and i tend to have a bias against these types of buys because you're putting out a lot of money. In this case, they're taking on more debt to make this happen, and AT&T is already a fairly levered company. They already have quite a bit of debt on their books, long-term debt particularly. Um, with a lot of these mergers, you know, you see this idea of synergies coming up, and and that being one of the main reasons they cite. You know, there's going to be cost savings. There's a lot of overlap in these businesses, and they're going to be able to realize some cost savings there. Um, they are not citing a ton of that in this deal. I think it's about a one billion dollar run rate within the first three years of the deal closing. So that that is not as much of a concern for me here with AT and T. I will say, you know, they're they're getting performing assets with Time Warner. These are you know uh, cable networks that are. Doing pretty well, you know. Like I said, HBO seems to be crushing it right now. Um, so less of a concern than it normally would be. But it's on AT and T to make this work, and this is a company that already has quite a bit of debt on the books. I think with the combined business, their debt load is going to be roughly half of their market cap. Yeah, it's going to be quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> one one other winner here from this deal, I think, is basically any other company that wants to go shopping in the foreseeable future, because there was a lot of skepticism as to whether this deal would go through. Right, and I mean, there also has been some criticism, you know, concern that maybe this is politically motivated because you know President Trump has a grudge against CNN, which is owned by Time Warner, um, and, and so I think a lot of companies that are kind of looking at these have these M and A deals. Our offers in the pipeline were waiting for this decision, and you know, literally immediately we we saw earlier this week. As uh, soon as this decision was announced, Comcast moved forward. You know, they had reportedly been waiting. They had this bid uh, to, for 21st Century Fox that would compete with uh, what Disney's offering. They they reportedly had this bid just kind of waiting, <laughs> and as soon as this news comes out, they just the day after they announced the 65 billion dollar offer. Which is, you know, I think, nineteen or twenty percent greater than what Disney's offering. Uh, so that's certainly good news for Twenty First Century Fox. But yeah, just another, you know, 
another big media deal. Yeah, and and if you look at this deal and Comcast's previous deal for NBC Universal, uh, the precedent there is pretty strong that something like that would be pushed through by regulators that they wouldn't have any problem with it because, as you mentioned, it's vertical. Uh, it's not quite horizontal though. You know, with other media properties under the umbrella, maybe it gets a little bit tougher for Comcast. Uh, you mentioned the Sprint and T-Mobile deal. Uh, I don't know that that's going to be a breeze for them, you know, because it is a horizontal merger. Right. So, I, I still don't think that T-Mobile Sprint has a great chance of getting approved um, because it is horizontal. And, you know, the big thing is that vertical mergers, they actually have a more Potential to help consumers because you know to the extent that these companies can get some cost savings if they're if these things you know go through, uh, the company can choose to pass along some of that cost savings along to consumers in the form of lower prices, you know, or keep it for themselves or some combination of both, uh, you know. But fundamentally, yeah, their, their regulators don't, aren't really as concerned with vertical mergers as much as they are concerned with horizontal mergers. We're going to talk a little bit about the way regulators approach this case and kind of where they fell short in making some arguments and why DOJ is kind of a loser in this instance. Um, But before we get over to that on the back half of the show, I want to thank Bloom for supporting Industry Focus. It's time to get your retirement on track and fix your 401k with Bloom. That's Bloom with three O's. Sounds tough? It's not. In fact, it only takes five minutes. Do you have a 401k? Remember how frustrating it is to decide what to invest in without professional help? Now there's a better way to grow your 401k. Bloom, with three O's, is simple, smart, and affordable, and it helps you grow your 401k. Go online to bloom401k.com slash fool and simply connect your existing 401k with a few easy steps. Then sit back and relax while Bloom performs an unbiased analysis of the funds in your account and chooses the best mix to meet your goals while minimizing hidden investment fees. Getting your investments right doesn't have to be hard, painful, or time-consuming. Bloom only takes five minutes, and your retirement is set until you cancel. And Bloom's pricing is $10 a month, regardless of account size. Bloom is so simple. In fact, the hardest part about it is remembering there are three O's in the company name. To get started, go to bloom401k.com fool and enter promo code fool for your first month free and see the difference Bloom can make in your retirement. So, we mentioned, Evan, that this is a bit of a failure by regulators or the, or the DOG, uh, DOJ, and um, it ultimately came down to the fact that Judge Richard Leon ruled the department did not meet its burden of proof for the case. Why don't we talk about some of the arguments that they were trying to make and and why, frankly, they didn't really seem to stick? Right. So they didn't really have a strong case to begin with. I mean, remember the, the Department of Justice is the one that you know brought the suit against AT and T. So AT and T is basically the de- defendant here, uh, and. That puts it on the Department of Justice to prove, you know, make a pretty strong case and argument for why this would hurt uh, the market, the competitiveness in the market, which ultimately would hurt consumers. And they had two kind of big overarching arguments. Is that one is that it would hurt uh, these third-party distributors, including uh, these these new nascent over-the-top services that have been coming up over the years. Uh, but that kind of didn't really make sense because AT&T has its own over-the-top service <laughs> called, you know, with Directv now, and and again, they're they're not trying. It's not like they're trying to marginalize these services. They're trying to adapt to embrace these services. And the Department of Justice was basically saying, "Oh, this deal will hurt competition. It will hurt innovation." But that just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> and the DOJ also made this argument about HBO and kind of this quizzical one about how. With HBO under AT&T's property, they could limit the scope of 
HBO's use. You know, they could prevent other people from carrying it. And that's something that would hurt the money that HBO would be able to bring in for them, you know, via fees. So, so it was, it was kind of this very tangled argument that the DOJ was trying to make. Well, exactly. It's like, uh, you know, the idea is that once AT&T owns HBO, which is a hugely popular you know, service, like you mentioned, that maybe they'll use it as a way to withhold it, as a way to kind of you know, strategically hurt other companies, other distributors. But yeah, HBO wants to sell as much of their service as possible. I mean, this is a subscription-based business. They don't run ads. So why would you artificially limit who you sell to and then hurt yourself in the process? It just doesn't make any sense. And in, it was even in the testimony, HBO's chief revenue officer, Simon, said, like, our whole business relies on uh, affiliates promoting us. If we don't do that, then our business is just destroyed. <laughs> you know, something along those lines. And yeah, it, it's just kind of silly to think that they would voluntarily crush their own business just to prove a point to be different i don't know like there's not really a good reason like they have no incentive to do this (laughs) yeah the the comcast nbc universal deal came up quite a bit in this case because it is seen as a, a kind of a very direct precedent for what regulators might expect with activity once it's under that umbrella and and I think I remember one executive saying that you know Comcast has has no part of the negotiations that NBC makes you know with other companies, and so uh, it's unclear if AT and T is going to do the same thing. But the, you know the idea there is that these are somewhat separate entities. Um, that said, there's a lot of value in AT and T having you know all of these these content companies within there. Um, I think that it's something that they could choose to bundle very well and, and kind of use as a draw for a lot of their uh, you know whether it's their wireless business, whether it's their direct TV businesses, you know, there, there's kind of a lot of natural stuff they could do there. I've also seen some arguments that uh, on the data side, you know, they can get super targeted uh, with what they're doing related to content and that it might be something that they wind up pursuing that way. Right. So there, you know there's definitely a lot of angles in how they can make it work. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there, you know, this does make a lot of sense in, in the context of what, like, like we, what we've been talking about, which is all these media companies want to own, or these telecompanies want to own the media, particularly on the for these wireless carriers, because they also want to try to bundle it with these data plans, and then you know, mobile video is going to be a huge revenue driver for all these cell carriers, you know, going forward, and if they can really get, you know, if they own that service too, I mean, that's just the best of both worlds for for a wireless carrier. As for the impact for consumers, uh, there was some testimony around this and, and some ballparking going on to kind of get a feel for, okay, what's a worst-case scenario for uh, the hit consumers might have with you know, all of Time Warner's properties under AT&T? And the government had this star witness, Carl Shapiro, who is an economist, and he ballparked that U.S. consumers could wind up paying in just under an additional $600 million by 2021 if the merger was approved. And someone did some kind of follow-up analysis on that, and it looks like it would wind up being a little more than five dollars per cable customer per year, which, when you put in that terms, is actually really not a ton of money for the size of this overall merger. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's that's only if AT&T chooses to try to go that route of of increasing pricing or anything like that. Um, so yeah, that, and that's kind of where you have to take these companies' words for you know what they say they're going to do and what they actually follow up and end up doing. So that's where we just kind of have to to wait and see. 
And I will say, I am generally a skeptic of companies taking any cost synergies that they realize and passing them along to customers. I don't think that you see that all that often. You know, I think what you see instead is prices stay the same and margins expand. Um, so I don't know that this is something that is truly altruistic, you know, in in any way uh, by AT and T. But but it seems to me like you know, like it or not, it's happening. I don't know that the impact to consumers is going to be all that strong, at least you know, for the next couple of years, maybe maybe seven or eight years out, once. Uh, some existing deals lapse, then we might start to see you know more of it felt. Right, exactly. Like certainly, I don't think these companies are <laughs> like going to voluntarily just generously give money back <laughs> for no reason. <laughs> but but I think like the the the, broad, the bigger p- picture is that you know that competition is not being hurt. Right. So so long as there's still robust competition in the marketplace, then you know, what's more likely to happen? Well, the AT and T will respond to competitive pressures from like other companies that are offering good, better prices. And then, you know, that's typically more going to be more of a catalyst for why prices might come down. But if they can at least save some costs on the back end, that gives them the room to at least be able to do that in response later on. So, yeah, I think that, you know, going forward, there's still plenty of competition in, you know, programming and distribution on the video side. So, yeah, I mean, I, that's why I don't, I don't think this, this, I think the suit failed, you know, because that, of the, those reasons. I mean, they didn't really prove that competition was going to, Suffer from this. Uh, I am not an AT and T shareholder. I don't think you're an AT and T shareholder, Evan. Um, do you think that they're better off with uh, Time Warner under them? I'm not really interested in investing in this space <laughs> in general, <laughs> just because you know these companies are, are so huge and massive, and they're these kind of legacy old school companies. And I, I tend to you know stay away from those types of companies. I prefer. I'm more interested in you know more exciting tech companies that are kind of more looking towards the future of where these things are going to go, like Netflix, for example, which I do have shares. I do not have shares of at and and I'm not interested. <laughs> uh, but I think you know this certainly is going to change the landscape a little bit. Yeah, it, it, at best, it builds out their offering. I, I think it that doesn't make them uh, all that different of a business. You know, I think they are still going to be a you know kind of stayed telecom business, much like Verizon is, where you know you collect your dividend yield, and as long as that continues to pay out, you know, I don't know that the price is going to move all that much and that you'll enjoy a lot of share price appreciation. Um, anything else on the on the acquisition, on the DOJ, uh, on, on hockey before I let you go? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're okay. <laughs> all right, listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or if you want to reach out and say, hey, you can shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, you can subscribe on iTunes or check out The Fool's family of shows over at fool.com slash podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.